I want to talk about love for Louisville for just a moment. I love this city. We, we moved here about five years ago, six years ago, to start this church. So our five-year anniversary is coming up next month, so give yourselves a round of applause for making it this far. And uh, we're super excited about that. At the five-year, we're planning on celebrating and parking our food truck outside and feeding everybody falafel waffles. So it's going to be an exciting service when that day finally comes. But Louisville has so much going for it, it's just kind of unbelievable. I've been in a lot of big... I was in St. Louis this week, and I would hate living in St. Louis. It's just crowded and congested in concrete jungle. And Louisville is, in Louisville, you're 20 minutes from everywhere. You're 20 minutes from a park. And of course, we have Thunder Over Louisville, which is the largest fireworks spectacle in North America annually. And if you haven't been there, it's a bucket list item. I, if, I, if I lived elsewhere, I've, I've seen the fireworks display on St. Patrick's Day in Dublin, Ireland, and it was nothing compared to what Louisville puts on every year. It's just a spectacular event. There's these little niche areas of Louisville that I've come to adore, and this is a place off of Old Bardstown Road. So, so if you're used to driving to Butchel down kind of the, the, the bit wider Bardstown Road, this is Old Bardstown. And right here underneath the baseball diamond are a couple restaurants called Katmandu, which is, a, in my opinion, the greatest Indian food and the Nepalese food in, in the city. Andrew's nodding at me. And then right next to it is a place called Borsalino's Cafe, which is a Bosnian joint that serves this amazing fill of bread filled with beef and cheese, and it's incredible. And then across the street is Pasha's, which is Mediterranean. Down the road is Arno's, another Bosnian-owned restaurant that serves, in my opinion, the best, most economical pizza in town. It's a little unknown that nobody knows about, so check out Arno. And then right up the road is a place called Dasha Barber's, which is a black couple that's been cooking soul food together for about 30 years, and they formed a restaurant. And so, in my opinion, it's the best fried chicken in town. So this aerial display has my heart. I just love this area of Louisville. It's an incredible joint. And there's lots and lots of, you know, the Highlands gets all the rub, but forget about the Highlands and drive down here. I'm telling you, it's good, good stuff. Not to down the Highlands, except that I just down the Highlands. So, <laughs> speaking of the Highlands, we love their farmer's market. There's farmer's markets all over town. There's really neat joints you can go to. It's just, a, it's just a neat place. There's bike trails that connect with one another that run hundreds of miles around Louisville. There, there's, there's forests within 20 minutes. There's the, there's the city within 20 I feel like I'm on vacation every time I go downtown because of the little delis and coffee shops with the outdoor seating and such. It's just a, a really neat city. And there's always something going on. If you didn't, haven't seen it, Kevin James, who is a very funny comedian, is going to be here coming up. Uh, the War Panties play every week on, up on... Sorry. <laughs> I, drive, <laughs> I drive past this every week and think, what? What the heck is that? I don't even know, and I have no interest in wanting to know. But, but there's always a show going on. There's always a play. There's always music. There's always poetry. There's, there's, there's the moth events. If you haven't looked that up, look that up. They happen regularly. Just fantastic stuff going on constantly. And right now, the Kentucky State Fair is going on where you can get a donut cheeseburger, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So no, it's not. And, or, or, or a donut Philly sandwich. And I, I went there wondering, what kind of person eats a Krispy Kreme cheeseburger? And then I saw him. And you just, you just get all types at the Kentucky Fair. And the Kentucky Fair, is, if you haven't been to the Kentucky Fair, check it out. But what I'm saying is that Louisville is a neat, neat city with a ton going on, and it just keeps getting better. And I, in my opinion, we have a person here with us this week that is assisting that progress. And so I'm real excited about introducing him in a moment. But I want to introduce you to a, a portion of Scripture that you've probably passed by before and never really given much thought to. And it's talking about the end times. It's talking about what the new heavens look like. Once, once the earth is restored and everything is made new, this is a, a, a kind of a central belief in Christianity that God's going to come and fix everything at some point. And this is a description of it. It's talking about the capital city of the heaven, of heaven, of the new heaven, of the, of the new earth. It's, when everything is restored, this is what goes on in the city. And it says, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, with each gate consisting of a single pearl. 
The main street of the city was pure gold, as pure as transparent glass, but I saw no temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temples. If you're not familiar with the, the nomenclature, the Lamb is, is like code word for Jesus. So it says God and Jesus are the temple of God. And that's the part I want to point out to you, is that when God fixes everything, when God restores everything to the way he wants it to be, it says there is no temple. So we're used to this world where Christians come and congregate together and kind of isolate from the world. And what the book of Revelation says about what God's original intention was and what God's original design was is that Christians would be mixing it up with other people constantly. That if God had his druthers, which one day he will, there would be no place that we go hide. There would be no place that we go isolate ourselves from the rest of the world, but we would be mixing it up. And I think it's important as Christians that we see that, that this, this isn't it, that there's a world out there and that's where God is and that's where God is worshiped and that's where God is glorified. And that's where we love people and love people well, which brings the greatest glory to God of anything you could possibly do. And so today what we're trying to do is kind of mix that up. We're trying to bring the city to us and bring some people to us that maybe we don't normally get to talk to and normally get to experience. There's some wonderful, incredible people in this city. Jesus, when somebody asked him how to pray, he said, you're supposed to pray like this. He says, God, that your kingdom will come, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we've just discovered that God's will was that there would be no church, there would be no temple. Church ecclesia, yes, but church building, not so much. His ultimate will would be that we would be out there living out this love, of, love for Jesus and love for people. And so Philippians teaches that we're not supposed to take look at only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. In the same passage, it says, consider others as more important than yourselves. The the, the Christian church is supposed to be outwardly focused. It's supposed to be looking outside. It's not just a place to come and be more spiritual and connect with God personally, but it's a place to come and be filled so that you can take the love of Jesus out into the world. Jesus said in the greatest sermon of all time, in his greatest sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are the light of the world, and a city is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. He talks about how you don't take a lamp and hide it under something, but instead you open it up so that the whole world can see. And, the, and, and he, he concludes this by saying that if you let your light shine before men, the Father will be glorified. And so it, it, it's, it's all to say that we're not supposed to be just in here. We're supposed to be out there. And so when I met Rashad Abdurrahman, I'm, I'm trying to get your name right, man. Akman, I'm, I'm close, man. When I met Rashad the first time, I was at a uh, training center, uh, a training session for host homes, which was a, 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 an organization putting homeless people that were on the fringe of getting their feet underneath them into homes. And he was doing a training on racial equity and, and racial connections and such. And I have a real passion for that, probably to the point where you guys are wondering why I talk about it so much, but it's just going to happen. And I, I have a real passion for this. And so when I met him, I thought, man, this is a guy I really want to know. This is a guy I really want to connect with. And then through that, he invited me to a press conference at the beginning of Violence Prevention Week. And the young prodigies who are going to be performing for you in just a moment were there. And as soon as I saw them, I thought, man, we got to get them at Daylight Church. It just felt daylighty. It felt like the daylight vibe and kind of how we feel and how we think around here. So we do something in here that we used to call Convos with Cool Folks. And I heard that some of you think that's a really stupid name, so we've shortened it to Convos, which hurts my feelings a little bit, but I'm over it. And so it's the idea that we're going to bring some people in and, and have conversations with voices that normally you may not hear sometimes. And so, so we've, we've asked this amazing lady, Nyree Clayton Taylor, to come. And she was the 2019 Teacher of the Year, Elementary Teacher of the Year. And so we've, we've got a couple people we're going to talk with you uh, 
to today in front of you. Uh, Kate Barron is here, and Kate Barron was the school counselor of the year just, oh, wow. just recently. And so we, we believe in teachers here. We think teachers are about the most important people on earth. And so just first off, thank you for oh, living and for you. being who you are. We oh, just really appreciate you, you, and, you so and what you do. Tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and how you got started and how you ended up teaching. And just um, give us the lowdown. Well, um, my teaching career started at a very young age. I taught some very famous people. You might know Barbie, Ken, mm. Teddy Rupskin, you know. Um, I taught them with authority, telling them to be quiet and shut up. But um, as time went on during my second year, third grade, I just heard a voice telling me that I was going to educate. And, mm. and that's something that I really don't share with people a lot. But um, I feel like this is a platform to Savior. say that I just, I heard a voice in the midst of me running my mouth mm -hmm. and acting up, I heard a voice telling me that I would educate. And not necessarily that I would be a teacher, but that I would educate. And so from then on, I just planted myself in, in, that, in that word that I heard. And I know that it was from God that told me that I would teach. And so that's where I find myself today. You know, um, teaching in the West End that I was born in, where I love. And um, just trying to be a beacon of hope for students. Very good. Mm -hmm. So we saw that this this article on the young prodigies and what you're doing with your. I think you've started a nonprofit. This yes. this won an Emmy. Yeah, it won an recently. Emmy. Yes, the story won an Emmy, and so I said we won an Emmy. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So tell us about the young prodigies and your, the the hip hop education okay. nonprofit. And just okay. So um, all of this started. About 10 years ago, I was teaching at Freddie Elementary School, and I had always used hip-hop, but it wasn't until the reside area in Freddie Elementary School changed, and I said, well, I'm going back downtown to the California area where my great-grandmother was a um, big, she has a street named after her, Linton, um, Linton, you know, Jesse Linton Street, and she was a big, you know, policymaker then um, as a child, I mean, when I was a child. And so um, I said, you know, I want to go to the community where I grew up. And so the, when I said that, it just happened. And um, I started teaching at Wheatley Elementary School, and I just started to infuse hip-hop in everything that I did. Um, it wasn't welcomed at first, but when my principal um, saw that I was really teaching and that it was t getting results, then he put me in a, in a, into a classroom where that's all that I did all day. So in that sense, I have some of my students who were with me who were in third, they were in fifth grade, but I did have some of them in third grade. So it's a big, it's a long story. I've been with these kids for a long time. I've known them for a long time. So um, it happened in third, they were in fifth grade. And so Devon said, oh, I think we should be the young prodigies. I was like, okay, so y'all are the young prodigies. And so the first thing that they did, they made up a song about Phyllis Wheatley. And so um, they performed everywhere. And I started to see that this is the way, you know, this is the way. They, they have to write, they have to read, they have to go in front of people and talk and be assertive. So it's, it's hip hop, because hip hop is FUBU, it's for us, by us, you know, it started in, um, the Bronx, and so they, they love it, and I've always loved it as well. It's just the vehicle to get them to do what I want, you know. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just you know, you have, to have, you have to have a hook, and, 
and hip hop is the hook. It's more than the hook because they live and they breathe it. So that's um, really how it all started. So I saw a, a brief recording, and it was edited in with a bunch of other stuff, of mm -hmm. you talking in front of a banquet room full of people. I mm -hmm. think they were up-and-coming educators mm -hmm. is the impression I got. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the one thing or the one moment or the mm -hmm. one conversation. Mm -hmm. or the, talk, talk about that for a second. As a teacher, what, what does that mean, the one thing? Well, um, at that particular conference, um, I always talk about that you just need one. You know, sometimes in life where it's full of no's, but you just need one yes. And when we're dealing with kids, you know, 365 days a year of 365 days may be no. But you'll get that chance, that one yes. And that one yes is when they're ready to listen. And that could change their life. We can't stop. You know, we're, we're, all, we're all saved by grace. You know, everyone. Everyone. Even, even our enemies. We're all saved by grace. And what the word says, it rains on the just and the unjust. And so what I try to instill in new teachers and what I instill in my students is you just need one, just one chance for that breakthrough. And I may not see it those 190 days in my classroom. It may come the next year. But I just have to count on that one interaction that can change their life. And we, we want to help invest in that one interaction. Mm -hmm. so, so this is the moment that becomes kind of uncomfortable for me, sitting in a room full of predominantly white people. And we've, we've talked about race, and we've talked about racial equity and reparations in here. And if you're unfamiliar with the concept of reparations, it's this idea that for 400 years, black people were held in bondage and oppressed by white people. And during that time, uh, education lacked, finances lacked, social organization lacked. I mean, it, it was just damning to the, to the African-American population for all those years. And we've made a lot of progress. But how do you catch up? After, after being oppressed and literally held in chains for hundreds of years, how could you possibly catch up and, and be co-equals with another race that was in power for that long? And they call that reparations. And the, the idea behind reparations is that maybe somehow the, the white community needs to try to bring that up a notch somehow. And, and, and there's, there's a thousand different theories on it. There's a thousand different ways of looking at it. And I struggle with it personally because I don't know what it means for my life. I'm a white guy that has benefited from this history. And I don't, does that mean I sell my house and move to the West End? I, I, I struggle with these things all the time. What, what does it mean for me personally? And then what does it mean for us as a church? And I, and I think from just the conversation before the service, mm -hmm. we would agree that the biggest gap that has occurred due to that injustice is socioeconomic and educational. Mm -hmm. we, we see that those are, the, are two areas that the African-American community was robbed, and robbed for a very long time. And so at, on this side of the aisle, the, the question is, what do we do? And I, I think that we should be investing in the education and socioeconomic situation of African-American people. But then that runs into the problem of white saviorship, of, oh, well, the white person finally rose up and did what was great, so they get applauded for making something right that should have been made right 100 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so the whole thing is really uncomfortable for me. And I know, I know there, we're, we're a reach across the aisle church, so there's a bunch of people in various places on the aisle in here. But as, as the pastor, I get to make these decisions. And we, we want to sponsor scholarship money for your students, because we know everything you do is, is out of your own pockets. I know it's not tied to the education system. So we're planning on sending you a check that you can use, you know, you, you can decide where that goes. But I'm assuming that sometimes the, the traveling you do, the places you go, that mm -hmm. The systems you put in place, kids have a hard time affording. Yeah. We want to help a little bit with that. It's not much, but we're, we're a small church, but we want to help a little bit. Oh, and just say that we, 
we connect with you and what you're doing and believe in you and, and say thank you. And so thanks. Well, thank you so much. We yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Clo closing thoughts. Where are you guys going as a nonprofit? Um, as a nonprofit, um, we are hoping to use, um, just get, we want to talk about issues that affect African Americans and not only, you know, affect African Americans, but affects all of us. So um, I go around and I speak to teachers and I teach uh, my students, they go with me. Um, it's getting to the point now that um, we had to form the nonprofit so we could be um, able to, you know, receive those grants. But um, they are in the midst right now, we're going to make a, a, um, a mixtape. And what the mixtape will be, it, it will be of black history. So you saw the black history cipher. We went to Alabama and they filmed, and we are in the midst of filming our video for um, reparations. And so we're gonna have to do an eight track CD. It's not CD anymore, is it? Well, an eight track <laughs> album. And um, that album will be of information for students so they can learn because students learn by hearing and by seeing. Not that I'm trying to take away books out of the classroom, but the visual works as a book. You know, we have to start to look at text differently. That's a text. Mm -hmm. What you just saw was a text. And so um, when I go into classrooms, I use that as my text. And I have the words written down. And everything that we talk about is, is from the standards, from the Kentucky standards. And so we're just teaching through the vehicle of hip hop. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, that's where the nonprofit is taking us. And, Hopefully it takes us beyond. I'm hoping for TV shows. I'm hoping for anything that's educational that's beyond the doors of the classroom. You know, there's something to be said for a teacher that doesn't just put in the nine to five and go, because the nine to five is already grueling. It's a grind, it's, it's brutal from my understanding. And then for a teacher to invest so much time outside of the classroom, just applause to you, oh, really appreciate you, so you. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank we're gonna, you. We're gonna invite Rashad up. Rashad, would you come? Thank you, thank you so you. much. Appreciate you. Thank you so much, I appreciate it. So like I said, I met Rashad at this training on racial equity at the host homes thing. And because he has a passion for our streets and, and, and our city, and because he has a passion for racial equity, he, he's a guy that I just immediately wanted to know better. And so we've had coffee together since then, and hopefully this is just the beginning of a, a long relationship. But um, I think I have a good picture of you here. There you are. I stole the, oh, hold on, hold on. I've got to, I got to change the background there because that's just, that's just weird. There we go. All right. You're styling and profiling there, buddy. I love it. So Rashad is the director of the Office for Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods here in town. And of course, you know, we, we watch the news. We, we know what's going on. We know that city streets are not safe. And, and it's kind of no matter where you are nowadays. And so I, I suspect when, it, when a shooting like the El Paso shooting goes on, that there's a heavy, like a blanket of weight that falls over you that doesn't, doesn't fall over the rest of us because it's kind of your job. It's kind of your like position to to help and to assist, and your brain probably turns in ways that we don't. Would you, would, first off, would you just introduce yourself, talk about, did you, did, were you born in Louisville, raised in Louisville? How, how did you get to Louisville? Sure, so, um, my name's Rashad. Um, I, how did I get to Louisville? So I was born in Houston, Texas, actually. Um, grew up there uh, pretty much through until the end of high school and came to Kentucky because I wanted to go to a school called Berea College. There's a couple of Berea folks in the room. 
Um, and Berea was this place, you know, growing up, I just wanted to get a, get away from family. family. Um, and so I, I was like, I want to just spread my wings, do something a little bit different. And Berea offered an opportunity to do that. Um, but it's a small school. You know, Houston's the third largest city in the, in the country. Berea is a, is a college with about 1,500 students at the time that I went there. And so um, it was this place, though, that really immersed me. It really pulled me in deeply, not only, not only to its mission. And I, and I love the connectivity, actually, because Berea's mission uh, is really founded on these anti-racism, anti-slavery principles. A guy named John G. Fee founded Berea in 1855, and uh, he wanted to have a school where black and white students and men and women were learning side by side, uh, learning, um, uh, laboring, and, and, and serving side by side. And in many ways, Madison County was ahead of its time when Berea was established. And when you look at some of those maps, you'll see black and white homes side by side throughout Madison County in the 1850s, y'all. Um, and so uh, I got just deep into Berea. I mean, the, the service, the, the, the learning opportunities, the history. Um, but it was the first place where I learned that an institution can have values and those values can be passed on to folks who pass through that space and carry it out into the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so I left Berea uh, with a, a firm commitment to equity, to service, to learning, um, and that's really guided me since then. And, and um, in so many ways, Bria, I think, was formative to how I move now in the world. Awesome. Tell us about your job. So, the director of director of the Office for Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods. What does that mean? Well, I mean, based on this picture, it looks like I'm a cowboy or a farmhand, <laughs> so it might be misleading. Um, and young prodigies, this way I have to be careful with social media <laughs> because you never know it's going to come back to bite you. So be careful. Be careful. Um, so director of Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods. So back in 2013, uh, Mayor Fisher uh, really pulled a group of folks together and, and said, um, if we're going to have a safe city, if we're going to have a community where – uh, we are addressing violence comprehensively. We have to look at all of the different ways that we can build out an approach that isn't just about policing, that isn't just about incarcerating people, but is about uh, investments in human capacity. Um, and so uh, a, a, a group of folks came together and built out um, a, a plan that really captured um, how we make investments in building community, how we think about education, how we think about uh, economic opportunity, how we think about health and social wellness, um, and justice, justice reform, and that was really the birth um, of my office. But probably the biggest thing, and I, I can't see that well, but I'm curious, just by a show of hands, um, how many people have heard that violence is a public health issue? How many folks have heard that? Okay, a spattering in, in the room. Um, and that's different than what it was in 2012. We weren't having that conversation as a city, not not at the level that we're having it now. And so over the past several years, we've really built up this idea that violence is a public health issue, but also what the heck does that even mean, that violence is a public health issue? And um, if you think about the way we address public health epidemics like the flu um, and the, the ways that we use um, opportunities to identify who's at risk, to put in place um, uh, mitigation strategies like um, vaccines, um, but then also to uh, target those approaches to folks who are at the highest risk of, of, of um, of, of, of attracting the illness, right? These are strategies that public health departments use around the country that we need to use when we're addressing other uh, public health epidemics like violence. 
Um, violence concentrates in areas like other diseases. Um, violence spreads within social networks like other diseases. Uh, what makes violence a little bit, uh, well, uh, you know, the other, the, there are other contributing factors to how diseases move, right? So uh, socioeconomic opportunities uh, is also a contributing factor to how diseases move throughout communities. Your ability to have access to affordable health care is a part of that. And when we think about the root causes of violence, like things like redlining, things like urban renewal, when you think about uh, decades of divestment in communities, when you think about access to fresh food, when you think about access to educational opportunities, green space, all of these things are contributors to violence. And when you understand that, then violence is actually the symptom of a much deeper problem, which is structural inequity, which is systemic racism. Right? That ultimately is the driver of community violence. And when we start to understand that, then we start having a conversation about something like reparations, which if I, can make, if I may make folks a little more uncomfortable, it isn't only that uh, black people and descendants of Africans were brought to this country in a way that prevented us from making any progress economically and socially, but that, that's, that free labor, that slavery, mm -hmm. was actually the driving economic force for what made this country a, a wealth powerhouse. And so, uh, so owning the, uh, the, the, the most uh, expensive or the most um, valuable commodity were slaves, right? That was the most valuable commodity of any other commodity in the country. And so there's a compounding interest question. There's a, there's a wealth creation and distribution question um, that actually then really um, elevates the, this, this economic gulf that we're talking about. So I know you guys do racial equity training, and I'm, I'm keeping my finger on the pulse of what you're doing and hopefully going to invite us to a weekend coming up. But talk about some other stuff you're doing. So when you, when you talk about this broad spectrum, how do we, we, we look at it as a, as a health concern and how do we inoculate, how do we do this, how do we do that? What are, what are some steps you're, what, like what's the practicalities of, of that? Right, so there are um, a number of different sort of ways to think about it. And if, uh, so one resource I would recommend to folks, and I don't know if there's something that you might be able to share as well, is the Center for Health Equity's um, Health Equity Report. Um, and that Health Equity Report really breaks out a model that helps us think about what, what these drivers of violence end up being. So um, oftentimes when we talk about community violence, we're talking about interpersonal violence, right? Sort of me to you, you to me. Um, and there are certainly interventions that could be put in place to uh, reduce those kinds of things. So for example, uh, we are doing a, a hospital-based violence interruption program, which um, allows individuals who have been injured either through gun violence or other means um, to get connected to case managers, uh, folks, other sort of support specialists, mm -hmm. um, employment opportunities to reduce the likelihood that folks will engage in further violence. Um, it also reduces the likelihood that folks will be re-injured again through future violence. So, so that's sort of like a direct um, interaction piece. Um, but as you move into other opportunities, if you go up a couple of levels, then you can begin thinking about, well, what are some of the environmental mechanisms that reduce violence? So uh, one example of that would be um, vacant and abandoned properties. Um, Louisville has, uh, a concentration of vacant and abandoned properties, primarily in West, in West Louisville. And so this is a very complicated challenge. One, because about a third of those properties are owned by deceased people. 
Um, and what that means is that in order to move those properties through a process to where the city can, can get them and do something with them, um, you have to then go through sort of a uh, uh, sort of layers of kin uh, to figure out sort of who owns those properties. Um, but then ultimately, as that process is happening, these properties become more dilapidated, and we also know that there's a correlation between vacant and abandoned properties and then uh, violent crime that might take place in some of those areas. Um, and so being able to remediate vacant and abandoned properties is, is one challenge. Um, but even if you go up an additional layer, sort of a policy uh, layer, um, there are policy questions that we have to answer as a city if we're going to be effectively reduce violent outcomes. Um, one example of that would be our city budget. Um, our city budget um, currently primarily funds um, incarceration models, right? Um, we don't currently fund a violence prevention or a restorative justice model, right? It's a, it's a lopsided um, investment right. strategy. And so there are questions about, one, what outcome um, is our city budget uh, promoting? Um, but then two, um, does our city budget reflect the values that we have? Mm -hmm. And so if we're a city that values um, chances, uh, additional chances for people, if we're a city that values youth, um, if we're a city that values um, resources for families and for individuals and community, um, I would argue that our city budget doesn't reflect those values right now. Um, and if we want them to reflect those values, then there's a question of, of what do we do as a community. Right. So part of the practicality of inviting a person like yourself to talk to us here is what can we do? So, so I, can, I can get up and talk about we should be involved in the city, we should love people, people that are different than we are and interact with people that we normally wouldn't interact with. But how, so so it, let, let's say there's 80, 100 people in the room that would say, I'd like to invest, I'd like to do something practical. What, what are some things that we as a church could do, either as a group or as individuals, to, to assist in safe and healthy neighborhoods? Right. Um, so th there's there's such a such a spectrum of things that that folks can do, um, and we all can do something. No one can do everything, but we all can do something. I do want to say that I, I also need to be like really explicit about West Louisville. Um, West Louisville is nine contiguous neighborhoods with about sixty-five thousand people living in it. Um, these this so West Louisville is not a monolithic um, place, right? Um, West Louisville has some of the deepest history that we'll find in our city, um, and um, there is a very small fraction of individuals in our entire city that actually promote about 70 to 80 percent of the violence that we hear about, right? Um, and so we have, to, we have to sort of separate reality from some of the myth that is really um, promoted by, uh, oftentimes by media, right? right? That West Louisville is sort of this monolithic dangerous place, right? This is untrue. Um, and although some of the, one of the first things people will say when you come to Louisville is, don't go west of 9th Street, well, you're missing out on uh, the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage, you're missing out on so many beautiful things, uh, the Western Library, so many historic places, the Urban League, you're missing out on so much if you don't go west of 9th Street, one. Um, but I think we have to begin really reshaping the narrative in our heads about West Louisville and about how diverse and vibrant West Louisville is and how, and how incredible the neighborhoods in West Louisville are. One of my favorite neighborhoods is Russell. Um, and if you just walk through Russell, you'll see some of the most beautiful gardens, lawns, you know, uh, flower beds in the, in the Russell neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And we don't talk about that. We never talk about the beauty of, of the neighborhoods in our city. 
Um, and so, so I just want to lift that up, right? I really want to emphasize, um, uh, emphasize that about West Louisville. And I want to emphasize that, again, about 70 to 80 percent of the violence that we see in our community is, is, is committed by a very small minority, a very fraction of people, one. Um, two is that because these neighborhoods are so historic, because these neighborhoods are, I mean, you all know Muhammad Ali was born in the Parkland neighborhood, right? Yeah, okay. Um, and so uh, the, the other thing is that uh, West Louisville residents and youth and folks who, who are, who are in living in these communities are creative, resourceful, and whole, right? And so it is not as though uh, folks that live in neighborhoods don't have solutions mm -hmm. and, don't, and aren't doing the work every day to make their communities what, that, that, what they want them to be and what they deserve them to be. Um, and so it isn't necessarily sort of, you talked about the, the concern about the white savior piece, which I think is, is a good thing to be thinking about. Um, but also there are so many ways to come alongside folks and there are so many ways to uh, plug into things that are already happening uh, that are meaningful um, and, and that, uh, that are useful, right? Um, the other thing I would say is a lot of the work that we're doing out of my office is, is very much about how do we engage young people? Um, and not in a way that's tokenizing, but in a way that elevates youth as leaders. Um, you know, I, I look at the young prodigies and um, I recognize that they are the leaders today. And you will be the leaders tomorrow, but you're leaders today. You're leaders right now, right? And so we've got to keep following and continue creating space for young people. And I appreciate y'all creating space today. Um, but we have to keep creating space and holding space and facilitating space for youth uh, to continue leading now, right? Mm -hmm. not, not tomorrow, not 10 years from now, but now. Um, I think that, so, so youth engagement and youth leadership is a big piece of, of our strategy, right? We have a youth, a youth group that meets with my team to talk about our strategy and to talk about activities as best that they want to do. Um, they also meet with Mayor Fisher uh, regularly to advise him and consult him on what's important to them, what they think he needs to be doing, um, and how he can move. Um, so th recently, um, they actually uh, uh, encouraged the mayor to move forward a resolution with the United States Conference of Mayors, which was adopted and passed. Um, and so it was around e-cigarettes e and jewels, and they wanted to see a little bit more um, uh, done to address this, this issue. And so the mayor moved on that, um, and they, were, they, they made him do it. Uh, well, they didn't make him do it, but they worked with him to do it. Um, so, so that's, that's one piece. The other piece, though, as I look in, in the audience, there are so many people here who um, uh, can be a huge part of what ultimately the solution is, right? And so uh, we've done a number of things, and I've, I've got some material that I brought with me, and I'm going to ask my two friends over here just to kind of pass down a little bit. Um, but uh, one of the things we've done is called our uh, One Love Louisville Ambassador Program. Um, and I'll just go high real quick. One Love Louisville is sort of a campaign. It's a community plan that really kind of says, how do we, how do we move forward some of these strategies around community building, around education, around uh, health and social wellness? How do we do that collectively? Um, and it's not my office that is owning all this work, but we're partnering with community organizations. We're partnering with the school system. We're partnering with other groups that are helping to push these things forward. So we're collectively... Um, moving these things uh, together. Um, the other, so and that's One Love Louisville. Part of One Love Louisville is 
you know, a lot of times folks will reach out to me and say, Rashad, I'm, I've seen something happen on, and on the news, I've heard about something that, that, that went down, and I want to be helpful, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to be helpful. Um, and so we, we've uh, implemented this initiative called the Ambassador Program, and, and hopefully you've got one of those cards. Um, but the Ambassador Program is a, it's an initiative where folks come in for a day, um, and they learn about some of these concepts, right? They learn about what, why violence is a public health issue, what that means. Um, they learn about community organizing. They learn about conflict resolution, um, mental health first aid, other components so that folks have some, uh, some, some knowledge and some skills uh, to help engage in volunteer opportunities or to help engage in different programs or initiatives or nonprofits now that, that, that are coming up in the city to support those efforts in meaningful ways. Um, and so it's not sort of the end-all, be-all, but right. it, it's a nice kind of uh, entry into some of what's going on in our city. So, so the information they need, did I turn my mic off? There we go. The information they need is, is on these cards. They can yes, track so, down to connect with, with what yes, you're doing. Yes, information's on the cards there. Um, so, and our contact information is on those cards. So reach out to us, and we are happy to sort of plug in with, with everyone in this room uh, who wants to get connected.